0: So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about wolves, false teachers in the church, and the, the danger of that, right? And uh, one of the things I wanted to say this morning is we're going to be finishing chapter three. But if you read chapter three in its entirety, um, then you'll notice that Paul is kind of making one main point here. I split it up for the sake of being able to rant for a couple of weeks. But really, it's one main point. And what we're going to see this morning is that the end of chapter three is really the response to these false teachers, the, the, these wolves that come into the church, the, the deception that kind of can, can creep in, um, the poor character. So we did talk a little bit about how to defend that, how to be aware of it the last couple of weeks. But this week especially, with Paul finishing chapter 3, or with us finishing chapter 3, we're going to get into this uh, topic of the sufficiency of Scripture. Really, really the question um, that we need to answer this morning is, how do we treat the Word of God? Um, You know, I, I think... The majority, definitely in this church, but in most, you know, evangelical conservative Bible believing churches would hold to this position that we've maybe heard of called the inerrancy of the Word of God, that God's Word is without error. And that's true. Absolutely that's true. And most conservative Bible-believing Christians would hold to that. And in fact, You know, say that if if you don't hold to that, then you're not a Bible-believing Christian. But inerrancy, as true as it is, still needs to be paired with sufficiency. So the Word of God is not just without error, but it's also sufficient. It's also capable. It's useful. And sometimes that's where even conservative Bible-believing Christians can miss the mark. Where we take Scripture and we say, yes, it's from God. God gave it to us so that we may know Him, and it's without error. But is it sufficient? I mean, does it really answer the questions that the modern man has? Does it really have the answers to the problems that the modern life has? Well, that's what it means to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that you would answer an emphatic yes to that. So we're going to look at um, this idea this morning as Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10, says, Uh, And you know what? I'll read it on the screen because I have it in the NASB here. So I'll have to switch back and forth. Is it the NASB? Nice. Excellent. Now, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. Persecutions and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood. You have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I lift up this time to you now, Lord, I I pray... Desperately, Lord, that you would use me to communicate your word faithfully. Lord, you know my heart. You know uh, my mind and my tendencies and uh, my desire to explain and explain and explain until it seems like everybody gets it. But, Lord, you are the one who communicates to the hearts of people. It is your word that does not return void, not my words. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would communicate this morning, that you would use me as a a herald of the gospel, Lord, and a herald of the truth of your word, and that we would have ears to hear this morning. And if there's anybody here who is not saved, God, maybe they are clinging on on to religion, maybe they don't believe your word has the answers that it says it does, Lord, I pray that you would um, remove them from the darkness, bring them into the light, reveal yourself to them, That they would know your kindness and your goodness and your loving salvation, Lord. That comes through your son, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins on the cross, Lord. And it's in his marvelous name that we pray this morning. Amen. So, um, again, we, we want to focus on this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture Particularly in this context of, of what we're seeing with these kind of wolves and false teachers entering into the church. In fact, Paul, even in our passage today, has to make mention of that. Uh, halfway through his what he's saying to Timothy. Um, that these people would, would go from bad to worse, actually. So, starting in verse 10, I just want to read 10 through 12 again. Paul says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith patience, love, perseverance, and persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The reality is the world, the fallen world, I should say the fallen world hates godly living. Now, we talked about this, and I, I, I know I keep saying this when I go back to my Wednesdays, but I'm, I'm balancing them both here for us. But we talked about this a few weeks ago. Why does the world hate godly living? Historically, why has the world hated godly living? They, they really, the, the world really hasn't hated the fact that people like Jesus. The world hasn't hated that... Um, Jesus was a kind person, that, um, you know, he had some good miracles, and he, he said some some really great things, like treat others like you want to be treated. So what does this mean? Where, where does that imbalance take place, where godly living would cause persecution, where the world would hate godly living? Um, and one of the things that we talked about was the fact that it's because godly living is not just moral living. It's, it's more foundational than that. Godly living is living according to the will of the Father, which is countering the fallen world in every place to the point where we don't line up with the world on anything at a foundational level because there's no such thing as neutrality. Paul tells us this. He tells us this in, in, in Romans 1. Romans 1. There is no such thing as neutrality. You are either on the side of God and his child, adopted into his family, a child of grace, or you are a child of wrath who is living in rebellion and hating God. And so even if the Christian and the non-Christian come to an agreement on something, like I said, like gravity, we may agree that gravity works, but the disagreement comes at the foundational level of how or who started it. Where does gravity come from? So even the way we look at the world around us will be different than the way that the non-believer looks at the world simply because we are supposed to be from a posture of worship. And the unbeliever is is not. So this would then obviously lead into, I mean, something like gravity is really not going to cause too much of a stir. But in other areas, in other avenues of agreement and disagreement, when worldviews clash, it tends to become a problem. Now, just step back a second here. There is a misconception for a lot of Christians in the way that the world will respond to Christianity, to Christians. Um, I think sometimes people are, are under this impression that, you know, if, if, if I just live like Jesus lived, people won't hate me. They'll, they'll love me. They'll, you know, they'll be, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that's, that's too much of a stretch. I think we can understand that um, even the world says, you know, you Christians aren't very Christ-like. Right, or you, don't judge, right? This is where the cherry picking of verses comes out. You want to live like Jesus, according to the world standards, you know the verses that you can cherry pick to do that. Don't judge, right? Um, uh, be accepting of everybody. But this is would be a misconception of Jesus' life, because... They they think in in terms of harmony. Um, And this is also a misconception of of that, uh, this idea of what Paul's saying here, which is, now you followed my teaching, right? Paul's speaking to Timothy, you followed me, my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, even my persecutions and sufferings. So, paul is telling us actually to follow him and this is not the only place that um, he even makes mention like this he says it in uh, 1 corinthians 4 16 for though you have countless guides in christ you do not have many fathers for i became your father in christ jesus through the gospel i urge you then be imitators of me and then 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is affirming Timothy here, saying you have done good at following my example. You have done good at, at, at listening to what I have taught, how I have lived, sticking by me uh, in, in all these things. And you, you've seen my conduct, my patience, my faith. And you followed these. And so when we look at this passage here and then we see... Um, what Paul says to... Or sorry. What um, Paul says to the Corinthians and, and the um, implications of being an imitator of me, we can understand that Paul is saying the same thing here to Christians today as well. Why? Because Paul says, follow me as I followed Christ. Ultimately, the goal is to follow Christ. Ultimately... Christ is the example. And then Paul says, if you desire to live godly in Christ, you will be persecuted. See, the world actually doesn't like the message of Jesus and Paul. And sometimes the world even, and even um, certain strands of quote-unquote Christianity try to pit the two against each other. Because Paul seems harsher than Jesus. And then you might want to see, I mean, have you actually read the Gospels? Jesus Jesus can be pretty harsh. I don't remember Paul putting together a whip and driving people out of the temple. That was Jesus. Um, But the reality is it's because that when you look at the real message of Jesus, when you look at the real message of Paul, it is an offensive message because it tells you that you must come and die. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong, even about little things. People hate to be told they've been wrong about everything. Everything. Um, and, and this is not just something that we see politicians do or journalists or celebrities. This is something we even see other Christians do. I remember, uh, this is like way back. It's on YouTube if you're interested, but, um, I didn't watch it live. I saw it on YouTube, but MacArthur used to go on uh, the Larry King show occasionally. And it's amazing. If you watch John MacArthur on the Larry King show, you can go on YouTube and look it up. He's been on there a few times you will be amazed that most of the time he's in this panel discussion with other professing Christians. And yet, in these discussions, his point of view is radically different from these other professing Christians. And when you listen, it's pretty obvious why. Because one of them is actually holding to the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, and the others are not. The others are tossed by their emotions or their, their, their ideas or their, or their ideologies, which can be incredibly dangerous. But MacArthur, you see, is striving to stick to the Word of God. He's always bringing it back to the Word of God. He's always bringing it back to the Gospel. And, and he doesn't pull any punches. But, so, it's not just even like the non-believing world that does this. It's even those who profess to be Christians, even those who um, lead churches and, and and are bishops. If you choose to follow the Bible consistently, the world will hate you because really, when you get down to it, your God is an enemy to their God's. Everybody's worshiping something. You, every every single one of us, and I think those of us who are in Christ now, when we know when we look at our lives before Christ, we know we were worshiping things. We wouldn't have said we were, maybe, but we were worshiping things. We all had idols, we all had gods that we had made, most of them probably in our own image. And that puts us at odds with the God of the universe. And so, when the God of the universe battles, so to speak, with our gods, um, for those who are not saved, that, that's, that's a message you don't want to hear, it's offensive, it's, it's, um, it's rude, it's, it's wrong, it's invasive, it's unwelcoming, it's bigotry. So one of the things we as Christians, I mean, well, Paul has a verse like this, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So the question that we need to ask is, um, if the world isn't persecuting us, why? I mean, I think that's a fair question. If the world's not persecuting us, then Why? Now, this doesn't mean we go looking for issues. Sometimes, though, it does. Everyone seems braveheart here. Right? There's that scene where they're about to do battle, and they send the, uh, the magistrates out to talk and, and try to reason with the British so that they don't have to battle. Right? And then William Wallace rides out there and like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to pick a fight. Okay, well... That's not always a good idea, but at the same time, what you're seeing there is he's not being passive. These other people are being passive, and that's the problem. What ends up happening with the passivity is that um, you just are rolled over, right? And you actually end up becoming like the ones who are rolling over you. So while we don't go necessarily go looking for issues, this does not mean that the Christian life is also passive. It's a courageous life. It's an, act, it's an active life. But at the same time, we, we, we seek peace, we, we exemplify love and joy and kindness, and all this is done in loyalty to Christ and His Word. So we don't bend on His Word we don't bend on what he teaches. So, my three big points this morning, this is the first of three, I'm just letting you know ahead of time, of, the, of understanding the sufficiency of Scripture is if we are going to really believe and hold to the sufficiency of Scripture, there's going to be three things we need. The first thing is going to be a desire to live the text. And that's what we're seeing here, what Paul's talking about. We need to live the text. We need to live out what Scripture teaches us. So we have to ask ourselves, are we living as Christ lived? Are we imitating Paul as Paul imitated Christ? And then we have to examine what that would look like. We need a standard by which to judge this Christ-like living, which is why we need the Word, because it's the only standard that tells us what Christ-like living looks like. So if we are going to live the text, we have to be in the text to do that, and we'll get to that in a little bit here. Um, But really, um, we need to approach the Word of God with a desire to live it out in the world. One of the things that... Um, I was just listening to a, a podcast yesterday, and one of the things that was discussed was the, the problem a lot of times with professors in the university is they go from high school to college to graduate school to do their PhD, and then into being professors. And they never actually get out in the world. Um, and the reason why this is a problem is because then what ends up happening is you kind of have created this echo chamber where you actually don't have to take any risks with the Word of God. You don't actually have to live it out on a regular basis because everything you do um, has kind of, it's just been in line with what you've done for the last few years, just kind of being in the academy. It's, the, it's a problem with um, Christian universities. It's a problem with secular universities as well. And that's why you can, in pretty much just one or two generations, have a completely drastic shift in worldviews in the university. But we as Christians are not to live this way. We need to desire to live this out in the world, not just in our little comfortable circles. We have to live it out in the world. We have to pick up the word each day and we are to look at it and ask ourselves, how now shall I live? How am I to love and treat others? When am I to speak up? When am I to remain silent? How am I to conduct myself? Start each morning prayerfully opening the word of God and asking him, plead with him, how shall I live? I I want to live this godly life. Show me how from your word. So then Paul moves on to verses 13 through 15. He says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Deceivers deceive. You continue to minister to the the Word. Deceivers are going to continue to deceive, Paul's saying. The people who are bad are going to go from bad to worse. That's what's going to happen. You stay strong, right? You continue to minister the word of God. You continue to be the light in the darkness. You continue to be the salt of the earth. The reality is, false teachers, wolves, are always going to be here until the Lord returns. And they will continue to deceive. And they will continue to lead people astray and we will see it happen in fact we even see it now just in the ways that um, Christians are responding to the tragedies in our nation we have no unity so false teachers they're capable of telling people unbiblical and undiscerning ways to respond to the issues of this world at hand This is why we said at the beginning it's so important that we understand the sufficiency of Scripture because we can't sit here and say, yeah, I believe God's Word is inerrant, but practically I don't know if it really can answer the issues of the world today. Well, then what will end up happening is the false teachers will tell you how to answer the problems of the world today, and you will be led astray by it. And Christians on all sides are just kind of swallowing these things wholesale. The real problem is a lack of biblical discernment. We have lost a lot of the wisdom that comes from knowing and and believing the word of God. Believing it's sufficient. It's not enough to just say it's sufficient. It's not enough to be able to write out that it's an error and it's sufficient you have to actually believe it too. And so, therefore, if we've lost a belief in the sufficiency of, in the Word of God, what happens is then you, you, you lose a, a, a boldness to minister to that Word. If you don't believe it's sufficient, you won't have the courage or the boldness to actually use it and, and minister to others with the Word of God because, quite frankly, you're not so sure it answers the question yourself. And we see this in the way a lot of Christian leaders speak today. There's a heightening of empathy and an emphasis on your narrative. Let me in- enter into this with you and feel what you feel. But that's, that's not necessarily wise. But it's become so commonplace that it seems like that's what we're supposed to do. And we also see it in the fact that more and more and more pastors feel inadequate to counsel their congregation. More and more times what we've got to pass this on to a professional. These are the fruits of a lack of belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. So the first thing that we need to do is that we need to understand is we have to live the text, but in order to live the text, we have to first believe the text, right? So the ultimate goal is we want to live the text, right? We're not being persecuted because we're not living the text. So we know, okay, you know, if, if, if Paul says that to live this godly life will end in persecution and there's really no persecution, then the question is, maybe we're not living the godly life. We want to live the godly life, well, if we don't believe what the text says, then we can't live the text out. The word of God is what creates the right beliefs, and it grants godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. So we come to the word of God, and we say, um, here's... We have to come to the word of God and we have to recognize, Lord, I come with worldly wisdom. I come with my own presuppositions. I come with my own definitions of love and goodness and peace and joy. I have all of these built up, okay, in my worldview that I come and I lay before you, Lord, and your word and I say, you make me believe what is true. You change my heart. You change my mind to be according to your word and what your word says. And this comes from believing who God is. Do we believe that God will do as he says he will? Do we believe that he is all-powerful and all-knowing? Do we believe that he is full of grace and love and mercy and justice? Do you believe who God says, or do you believe God is who he says he is? And to answer that, you have to say, I mean, have you been, this is the examining question here, is have you been changed? Have you been born again? Have you been changed from the inside out? Has God's word spoken to your heart and convicted you But you don't just sit in conviction, right? That's what Judas did. He just sat in the conviction and was guilty and felt sorry for himself. But the conviction causes you to repent. I want to change. I want to follow the voice of my shepherd. This is what belief in the word of God does. If you're going to live the word out, you have to believe it. Right? So if you don't believe it, then you won't live it. You'll cherry pick. Right? That's what non-believers do. They they cherry pick from the Word of God, the things that they want to live out, and the things that they don't think apply anymore. But us as Christians, we have to really, really believe that this Bible is true if we're going to live it out. And he says um, (laughs) here at the end that Timothy has been trained from his childhood to know these sacred writings, which are able to what? To give you the wisdom. The wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. So we have to believe that. We have to believe that that it's the word of God that will do what Paul says here it will do. It's the word of God that gives you the wisdom to live the faithful life in Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that convicted each and every one of your hearts that you needed to be born again. So if we're going to live out the text, we have to first believe the text. And then this leads us into our last section, which is all scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God. The word there, it actually means God breathe. Um, It's theanustos. It's God breathe. It's actually two words together. It's theos and pneuma put together. Breath, God. God breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what we need to do, really, if we're going to believe the text in order to live out the text, we have to return to a reverence for God's Word. We actually need to see that it's from God, and I know that seems simple enough, but Paul tells us this is, this is what it looks like when we believe the Word of God. We understand that it's used for teaching, right? The, the Bible, the Word of God teaches us what is true and what is holy. The world tries to teach what is true and what is holy. Other religions try to teach what is true and what is holy. But if these truths counteract each other, then they can't all be truths. Right? That doesn't, that doesn't work. Not uh, not consistently, anyway. But the Bible, Paul tells us, all Scripture is God-breathed. So it can be trust because it's not just man-written, it's God-breathed. God spoke it. These are the words of God. This is why there's a reverence when we come to the Scriptures. Not just because some guy Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. Not just because Moses was a really cool guy, and David was a great king, and they wrote these things down, and... Um, there are just these religious texts that we follow. No, as Christians, it's deeper than that. It's, it's God breathed. This is, these are God's words. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself. And they, they, are, they are eternal, these words, because he's eternal and he spoke it. And so Paul's saying it's, it's these, these words of God in the scriptures... Teach us what is true. They teach us what is holy. We we recognize that, right? I mean, um, we know God and we know about God because of what Scripture says about Him, right? We we can know what is true about the world and about God and about salvation because the Bible tells us. We can know about holiness. Because the Bible tells us about holiness. And the Bible even has the holiness code, right? It has, it has the, ten wo- the, the Ten Commandments. It has the law. It tells us this standard of holiness that God requires of his people. And we recognize very, very quickly that we cannot live up to this standard. And I could go on and on about the things that the Bible teaches us. Um, but for the sake of time, we have to move on to reproof. Right? The Bible not only teaches us, but the Bible also has a, a, a standard. Not, it's not just a textbook. It's not neutral. right? It reproves in the sense that it, it convicts, it works, it, it pierces the heart. It, it expresses strong disapproval, and it corrects wickedness. right? So this is why I was saying, we come to the text, we have our preconceived ideas of what morality is, goodness, love, love, All these things, and the Word of God corrects that. It brings that into, it it reproves it, right? It brings it and says, this is wrong. This is wrong. The view of of God is what is right. Anything else that that we bring to the text that is not in line with the text is wrong. And it, it So the Bible condemns what is evil, and then it tells us what that evil is. And it tells us that we are evil. But the Bible is not just about, you know, bringing people down and leaving them there. Paul says it also corrects. So it doesn't just tell you you're evil, and then we're done with you. That that, that leaves us in a place of despair. (laughs) But the Bible, Paul says, teaches, reproves, and corrects. This idea of correcting here is that it improves us. It restores us. It, It corrects what is wrong within us. So by submitting to the Scripture, we are restored. Scripture is used by God to restore us. Uh, into a right relationship with Him, to make us into a new creation. It is um, the Holy Spirit through Scripture that illuminates the gospel to our hearts so that we might be saved. And then lastly, Paul says, um, it's useful for training in righteousness. So Scripture not only teaches us and it not only reproves and corrects us, but it's, it's our training as well. It trains us how to live this godly life. It, it, it teaches us about what is righteous, what is justice, what is love, what is kindness and, and, and mercy and grace. And how do we live these out on any sort of practical level? The Bible trains you for that. How do I become a minister of the gospel? In a culture that is 2,000 years removed from when this was written, the Bible trains you for that. How do I deal with these sins that I'm holding on to that I I can't seem to shake or get rid of? I mean, where do I go with this? The Bible trains you. The Bible teaches you that. So the Bible teaches us how to be upright and discerning what is fair, what is lawful, it teaches us about righteousness and the idea of conforming to um, God's standard of holiness and then it, Paul says that it makes this, it, it, it makes you adequate and equips you right? the word of God being sufficient is what makes you capable it's what makes you capable of being able to be a light in a dark place. And so, if we're going to live the text, we have to believe the text. If we're going to believe the text, we have to know the text. Okay? So that's our, our building blocks there. We want to live the text, but if we're going to live the text, we have to believe the text, right? We have to believe scripture. But if we're going to believe scripture, we got to know scripture. So here's what I'm going to do to, to end our time. It's be some application time for just two or three minutes here. So if you've got notebooks, open them up. Um, Don, I was thinking about you. I don't know where Don went. Don, I was thinking about you in our conversation when I wrote this out. So I hope you hear it. <laughs> We we need to know the text, right? You will not live it if you don't believe it. You cannot believe it if you don't know it. The Word of God will teach you and reprove you and correct you. Um, it's not like a pill to swallow, right? This isn't this isn't the Matrix where you get to lay back and get that thing connected in your head and then you wake up knowing jujitsu, right? It's not like you get to lay back, think, and then you wake up and you're like, ah, I know the whole Bible now. You have to study it, right? You have to to really, really what it comes down to is is it's a lifetime of deep, devoted study, which comes from a desire to know Him, right? I want to know my God. I I want to know Christ-like living. I want to know Christ. And so, I desperately want to know His Word. And therefore, it must be done right. So, Um, here are some practices to being able to know the Word of God so that you may believe the Word of God so that you may live the Word of God the first thing is discipline Okay, right? discipline, that's the first one we need to be in the Word every day we need to be disciplined to be in the Word every day. And I'm sure most of you have heard this before, but we discipline ourselves in other areas of our life. You've disciplined yourself enough to eat when you're hungry. Right? If you didn't do that, you'd die right? to drink water. If you didn't discipline yourself to be able to recognize that you need water, you wouldn't make it very long. We need to recognize that we need to be disciplined in getting in the Word of God so that we can survive the spiritual battle that's around us. So we need to be in the Word every day and it has to be a priority for us. We have to be at church and Bible study each week. God has placed you here. He has placed the leadership here to watch out for your souls and to be your primary teachers and disciples, to shepherd you, to guide you, to know the text and to live it properly. That, that's our responsibility as leaders in the church, is to help you do that. And when you're not consistent, it, it shows. When I'm not consistent, it shows. It. it we're, we're designed to be consistently together, worshiping, being trained and discipled. We should also be disciplined in having a journal. Write down what you learn. What is God teaching you? What is the point of the text that you're reading? How does it apply to you? But also, what is the point of the text if you didn't even exist? Meaning, what is the point of the text at large besides just you Right? So we need to have discipline in these areas. And when it comes to reading, we need to read large portions. Okay, Read chunks of the Bible. Read chunks of the narrative. Not just a, not just a verse a day. Be invested in the story. See what's going on. Learn the context based on what's being written try reading through an entire letter read through the entire book of Ephesians the the Paul's letter to the Ephesians so that you can see how what he says in chapters 1 2 and 3 relate to chapters 4 5 and 6 read portions over and over right so read chunks at large but also read portions over and over Do something like read through Proverbs each month. There's 31 Proverbs. There's 30 to 31 days in a month. You do a Proverb chapter a day. Guess what? In a year, you've read through the book of Proverbs 12 times. I guarantee you'll have more wisdom at the end of those 12 months than you did beforehand. Read a Psalm a day. Read through the Bible in a year. These these kind of programs that are but ahead, but but really, it's it's you need to be reading, and you need to be reading more than just like a daily bread, more than just like a verse or two. And then the next thing is study, study the word, study the smaller portions. This is when you get into those smaller portions of the text. Learn the history of the text. Learn uh, the elements of of the language, like what I said today. Right, we, we used a, a Greek word, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand certain elements of why these words are important. Theonoustos. God breathed. There you go. You don't even have to remember the Greek part. Just remember the God breathed part. God breathed. Learn how the text has been understood by the church for the last 2,000 years. Ask your pastor or elders to help you understand if you come to a passage that you don't get. We love to do that. I do anyway. I love having those conversations. Consult commentaries and and study Bibles. Listen to sermons and and, and lectures and debates. Now, I know it may seem like, I don't know how I'm going to have time to do all that. Well, take it slow. But recognize that these are the things that can be done in order to know the Word so that you can believe the Word so that you can live the Word. Right, Because otherwise what happens is you don't do any of these or maybe you just do one and then you come to the word and you have really no idea what it's actually trying to say and so what ends up happening is you take the verse out of context and then you misapply it and then you misuse it and there's no power in that because it's wrong. And then the last one I had was Meditate on the text. All right? So if, if we're gonna if are gonna know the text and learn and study the text, we have to meditate on it. When, when, you, when you open the word of God, you should be praying for God to speak to us. God, what do you want me to learn from the text today? ponder on it, right? Think about it. And then memorize it. This is um, from Psalm 1. This idea of meditating on the word. Most of our English translations have this Hebrew word Hakah translated as meditate, but the idea is to mutter, to speak to yourself over and over again, which if you understand the historical context makes sense because they didn't have their Bibles with them they had to go to the scroll that was at the temple and they had to read it there. And the only way you're going to remember it is by memorizing it. So you would say it over speak it to yourself. You, You proclaim it. You ponder it. You sit on it. And this is how we memorize and meditate on the word of God. So I know I ended with a lot of instructions here But let me just hit these main points one more time so we get this. The idea of these instructions is so that we would know the Word of God, right? That's the key. We want to know the Word of God in order that we may believe the Word of God, in order that we may live the Word of God, okay? So if we don't know the Word of God, then we don't really have any foundation for what we believe. And if we don't believe the Word of God, then... We won't live it out. We'll live out something else instead. So um, I hope that um, I hope that something from this, at least from that study part, was, was helpful um, going forward because I do want us to be a church that, you know, that lives the Word of God. Right? We want to I want to see each and every one of us living this Christian life out. Together. And so therefore, we have to believe it. We have to believe the sufficiency of the Word of God. And in order to do that, we have to study it. Come together and study it. At church, at home. Talking to each other about it. So, it's great to see everyone again. It's uh, so nice to be able to look out and see so many faces. And um, I'm gonna let me just pray for us now. I almost said that we'll have lunch, but we don't have lunch. No lunch today. (laughs) Um, There's lunch at home if you guys go home. He's probably got something in the fridge. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would have this desire to be students of your word, that we would know you more and know what you said more and more, so that we would have stronger belief. And that we would have a stronger testimony in our lives, Lord, to live this out for the world to see, Lord. I pray that, ah, Lord, each and every one of us just grow that desire in our hearts to know you. And, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would recognize how amazing your saving grace is, how awesome you are, God, that you have saved us from our sin, that you have ripped us out of the world and made us into new creations. And Lord, I thank you that we know this because you, in your wisdom and in your love, gave us your word, and you gave it to us in such a way that we can trust, Lord, that it is holy and and reverent and inerrant, Lord, and also sufficient. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.